right? Am I the only one who does that? Okay, so you get Ben and Jerry's or whatever else is around. Uh, what I like to do is get the remote and just watch junk food TV. Is that what you watch? Or is it just me? Uh, there's a, a show I've mentioned before, and I, I promise that my life consists of more than watching TV. And I have, I have mentioned Pawn Stars more than once. I will confess that. But with that said, I, I refer once again to Pawn Stars, a popular show, and you can see the uh, family that's here. How many of y'all have seen this, by the way? Okay, so y'all are all just like me. And, uh, but it, it's, it's a popular show about the wheeling and dealing of a father and his sons in their Las Vegas, Nevada pawn shop. My favorite is Chumley. Um, because I just like to watch his, uh, his stupidity on the show. Uh, now, this isn't just the run of the mill pawn shop there in Las Vegas. Um, and it has really more than just the uh, watches that people bring in to hawk so that they can go and uh, buy something special that they want for themselves, or the people who take their golf clubs in uh, to trade for cash to buy beer. I had friends who did that in college. Uh, they would take the clubs their parents had bought for them, take them in. They just needed a little beer money for the weekend and uh, trade them in. Or sometimes an angry fiancé will take that diamond ring and hawk it, uh, usually out of anger or just spite or whatever, maybe because she really just wants to get rid of it and get the money that comes out of it and takes it in and makes a trade. Some of the items that people bring in are worth tens of thousands of dollars in this pawn shop on TV. Some of them are worth absolutely nothing. And you see the balance they try to bring into the show where you can get some idea of it. But part of the intrigue of the show is the process of discovery, of trying to find out if something is actually real or not, if it's authentic. And in every show there is at least one item that baffles uh, these three guys, or at least that's the way they make the show to be. And so what do they do if there is an item that they don't understand or they don't really know how to value? They call in an expert, yeah, and it's usually a historian. You know, a historian of Monopoly games or something like that, or some old toy that kids played with in the 1920s and they really aren't sure what to do with it and what to make of it. So they bring someone in to say, well, uh, and they build up all of the, uh, the hype about it. And when it gets to the end, there's usually, yeah, it's worth nothing. Or, yeah, it's worth $10,000. And there's always someone who leaves that's either very excited or very sad. So sometimes she or he has good news resulting in, in a happy customer. But sometimes the item is proclaimed to be inauthentic. The expert who knows the item inside and out makes all the difference. As we hear our text today, as we just heard actually from the Isaiah uh, scripture, but also from the James scripture, we are presented with a kind of discovery process for an extremely valuable item. And we are introduced to an expert who comes in and has intimate knowledge about the item. And the item is faith. And we talked a little bit about this last week of reading from James chapter 1. And what is faith? And what is the nature of faith? And what does it have to do with works? And how do we understand all of these things? We talked about Martin Luther, who really, uh, through what he was doing, began this great Protestant Reformation 
about looking at faith and what is the nature of faith and does God love me if I just have faith and I don't do anything with it or how does all this work? So the item that we are looking at and investigating is faith and the expert is James. The Christians that James is writing to, they seem to be baffled by the real nature of faith. So James just comes right into their context and he clears it all up for them in simple and practical ways. And if you're like me, and I was just sitting right over there and I've been reading this text all week, it just jabs you. You you can't escape James. And I think that's why Luther didn't really care for James and really didn't even want it in the New Testament uh, because it, it is so hard to take. It's hard to hear sometimes. You can't read James. You can't be in this room and hear it read without feeling some level of conviction about the kind of faith and the kind of uh, uh, expressions that it has in your life. But they were baffled and uh, we may think that, that we have faith and find ourselves challenged daily by this, just like they were. So how can you know if your faith is real or not? I remember when I was growing up, we'd have revivals, sometimes two-week revivals. And uh, we would have a revival preacher come in and make sure that everyone who felt uh, a little bit of apprehension about their faith would get saved again and get baptized maybe again. And church numbers, you could, uh, Baptist churches, you could just count up how many baptisms you had and that really affirmed who you were and in your local association of churches made you look better. And that wasn't the case with all revival preachers and revivals, but in a lot of them I was in, that was the case. But people would begin to question their salvation. And they would begin to wonder, is my faith real? We've all had those questions. Maybe you're having that question today. How can you know if your faith is real? One way to know if your faith is real is by checking to see if it is inclusive. And this is something that James mentions here. This is what he was writing about when he addressed the problem of favoritism in the churches. Here in the first nine verses, he gets right to the issue. They were showing preference for the rich, and they were turning away the poor. Essentially, they were filtering people out at the door. They could see someone coming and assume certain things about their income or their way of life or whatever and say, yeah, we really don't have a seat for you. And we know this kind of thing goes on. We know it certainly has gone on racially. We can look uh, 10 years ago and see uh, churches that were discriminating based on color at the door. In fact, I heard of it happening uh, in uh, Cushada four years ago, four or five years ago. The same kind of thing goes on. And this is what was taking place with them. It was not only a socioeconomic issue, it was a racial issue, it was a Gentile Jew issue. There were a lot of different aspects to this kind of favoritism. And they were filtering them out. And if someone came in who had money, or who just looked like they had money, they would be given the very best seat. Which you know is on the front pew, right? You know that. (laughs) If you had uh, on common clothes... If you lived in a poor part of town, or you had an odor, you could come in, but only after the rich people got a seat. 
you, you could come in and have the best seat, except if there were other people there that uh, had a little bit more than you did. And you, you could stand at the back or just go home. James couldn't believe they were treating people with such discrimination, especially since they were the religious minority, and certainly they were not rich. The ones they were favoring were the same ones who were treating them like dirt. I don't know if you caught that in James or not, but he says, why are you giving them favoritism? These are the people that take you to court, and they take all your property, and if you have any debt at all, they, they just will take everything. And so why are you treating those same people with this kind of favoritism? And James confronted their favoritism. He rebuked them for it. He even says, it's a sin what you are doing in your churches. Uh, the author and pastor, John Ortberg, he writes about the challenges of inclusion in his book, and I love the title of it, Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. Right? <laughs> Isn't that true? And I was thinking about this, Bridesmaids. How many of y'all have seen Bridesmaids? You really, you really shouldn't be watching those movies. <laughs> now, I saw it the other day, it was on TV, and they blurted out all the bad words. But I, I was watching it, and there was an airplane scene. If you've seen it, you remember the airplane scene. They're flying to Las Vegas, and uh, Kristen Wiig is uh, playing the, the character who uh, she just can't deal with the stress of that flight, and she's back in coach, and her, uh, she's the bridesmaid, and the bride's up in the first class with this really rich lady who's really trying to win her over to be best friends, and so she just gets kind of crazy, takes some things she shouldn't take, and drinks some things she shouldn't drink, and begins to dispute the whole idea between coach and first class. And uh, I, I remember this story from Ortberg. He says, our fallenness... Our fallenness makes us want to be a part of not just any group, but an exclusive group. By definition, every society includes people uh, who connect, who belong to one another. Yet every society includes people who feel left out, who don't get chosen at recess. That was me. Whose invitations to dance get turned down. Me again. Who get blackballed and cold-shouldered and voted off the island. We exclude others because of pride or fear or ignorance of the desire to feel superior. I thought of this tendency, he says, that, that we have to divide people. The last time I was aboard an airplane, the first class passengers were served gourmet food on china and crystal by their own flight attendants. Those of us in coach ate snacks served in paper bags with plastic wrappers. The first class passengers had room to stretch and sleep and those of us in coach were sitting with a proximity usually reserved for engaged couples in the back row of a movie. <laughs> the first class passengers had flight attendants bring the moist towelettes for comfort and for personal hygiene. Those of us in coach had to sit and stew in our facial sweat. On almost every flight, once the plane is underway, a curtain gets drawn to separate the two compartments. It is not to be violated. It is like the Berlin Wall or the veil that separated the court of the Gentiles from the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Jerusalem. The curtain is a reminder throughout the flight that some people are first class and some people aren't. Those who aren't first class are not to violate the boundary. They can't even see what's going on behind the other side of the curtain. On a recent flight, he says, a voice came on the intercom system telling us that because of new security measures, the attendants were not allowed to fasten the curtain. 
But the airline wanted all of us in the court of Gentiles to know that we are not allowed to use the facilities in the Holy of Holies. Even though there was one restroom for eight people up there and two restrooms for several hundred of us, mostly children under six who had been drinking Jolt Cola the whole flight (laughs) on the other side. He says, Let the curtain stand for a tendency deep inside the fallen human spirit. The tendency to exclude. In the act of exclusion, we divide the world up into us and them. Have you ever thought about that before? As you are on a plane and see the curtain that is drawn. Maybe you didn't have to be on a plane to understand what it feels like to be at the back when everyone else is at the front. You may very well know what favoritism looks like because you've experienced it throughout your life. Maybe you've just seen it everywhere you've been, starting in school and in other places. There is someone who is always favored more than you are. They're treated with a a different set of requirements and blessings and all kinds of treatment, and you're not. Or maybe you've been the one who plays favorites. Deferring to the rich in your thoughts as well as your actions. What we must all know this morning, whatever side of exclusion that we are on, is that God is not in favor of favoritism. Right? On God's airplane, there is no first and second class. That's not the way that God flies. It is not the way that God treats people, and it is certainly not the way that He wants us to treat people. There are no special seats. There are no exclusive snacks. And there is no curtain that keeps you in your place. Well, actually, there once was such a curtain. But God had Jesus rip it down the middle, opening the pathway for everyone to be on and to be one, for all to have what God has always intended. He has completely destroyed the things that we prop up to make us different from one another. And as Paul says so well, that there is no longer uh, slave nor free or male or female. We, We are all one. There's no longer Gentile or Jew. Jesus has made us one. Right? Y'all staying with me? All right. You're back there on the plane, right? (laughs) And you could even say that everyone gets to ride in first class on God's airplane. Even if you don't feel like it at the time, everyone gets to be in God's first class. Now that is one real test of faith, to see how inclusive it is. Is your faith one of inclusion or exclusion? Are you riding around on God's airplane telling people where to sit? I've been in churches where if you're in the wrong pew, you're going to be told you're in the wrong pew. I like it how y'all kind of mix it up a little bit in here. No one's a creature of habit. But that's happened. And you've probably seen it happen or maybe you were sitting in someone's pew They've sat in for 30 or 40 years and they ask you, yeah, they may stare at you for a few minutes, try to get you up, but then they'll ask you. uh, It happened in my very first church and I think it's happened in every church ever since. So are you checking for tickets? Are you determining who gets entrance 
Are you determining who gets special treatment and access to God? The church and all its people ought to be the most inclusive place on earth. But sadly, it is known more for its exclusion than its inclusion. Isn't it? The people that aren't here today that maybe you invited to come to church, maybe they said, church, I'm not going to go to church because they exclude this group or that group or they didn't accept me when I came or maybe it's the perceived thought that they won't accept me because of who I am or what I've done. And we understand that's a problem. It is a big problem in the church, not only here in Shreveport, not only in the United States, but around the world. It is a problem that the church of Jesus Christ is going to have to deal with in a better way. We can't do anything about it in other places. I can't affect change in somebody else's church, but we can make sure that people get the right message in our community, can't we? We can make sure that people see and feel the inclusive love of Jesus here and everywhere we go during the week. As you go out from this place today, you will go into certain situations and certain circumstances and be around certain groups of people. And God has called you there and will call you there and direct your footsteps there so that you can make sure they feel included. So that you can demonstrate to them the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. So that's one way to test your faith. Is it inclusive? But there's another way to know if your item of faith is truly authentic or not. And it's the mercy test. James wrote of how they were to live uh, as those who were to be judged by the law of liberty. For that is how God would judge them. This whole idea of God's standard and, and God's law of liberty. If they showed no mercy to the poor, then He would show no mercy to them. This is that idea behind the saying, what goes around comes around. James knew that some of them who had received and experienced the mercy of God in Jesus were not passing it on to the people around them who needed it the most. And Jesus, in fact, told a parable, several parables about this. You have this huge debt, and you're getting ready to be thrown in jail, and the uh, businessman comes along, getting ready to do that, and says, uh, okay, I'm going to forgive your debt. And then you go out the door, and you find someone who owes you a debt, and you tell them you're going to do all these terrible things to them unless they pay you back. And you have not treated them as you've been treated. That's a, that's a sin, James says. And so James knew that some of them who had received and experienced this mercy, they weren't passing it on. And God would hold them accountable for it. For, for it and, and using this law of liberty as the defining measurement. I read some quotes this past week about mercy to the poor, and, and how the early church felt about that. And so listen to some of these quotes. Ambrose, the theologian and church leader of the 4th century, he wrote, There is your brother, naked and crying, and you stand confused over the choice of an attractive floor covering. It's nice to know that back then they argued about floor coverings too, right? <laughs> what color is the carpet going to be? And James says, You've totally neglected your brother in your very midst. Basil the Great, theologian and, and bishop in modern-day Turkey back in the 4th century, he wrote, The bread you do not use is the bread of the hungry. The garment hanging in your wardrobe is the garment of the person who is naked. The shoes you do not wear are the shoes of the one who is barefoot. 
The money you keep locked away is the money of the poor. John Chrysostom, theologian and also pastor of fourth century, he said, the almsgiver is a harbor for those in necessity. A harbor receives all who have encountered shipwreck and frees them from danger, whether they are bad or good. It escorts them into his own shelter. So you likewise, when you see on earth a man who has encountered the shipwreck of poverty, do not judge him, do not seek an account of his life, but free him from his misfortune. Mercy is so wrapped in works that it works itself out in concrete actions. Expressed so well in these quotes, but especially by James. What does faith look like in your life? Does your faith have any taint of mercy to it? Are you treating people as mercifully as you uh, treat yourself and have been treated by God? Is the church, the body of Christ in the world today, treating people with, uh, within it and, and really with, without it, on the people on the outside of the church, with mercy? As Church for the Highlands, we are responsible for our actions. Again, we, we can't really change what other churches do. We are the ones who must make sure that, as for our house, we are serving the Lord and that we are showing mercy toward all people. We must see that even if we feel like treating people with what they sometimes deserve, we are called to mercy. We are those who have been treated this way by God, and so who are we ever to hold mercy back from people? How could you ever hold it back when God has not held it back from you? I'm glad that our works of mercy at Church for the Highlands are, are quite evident. That you are so faithful to the, extend the hand of mercy to all those that you encounter. It, it's just been an exciting two years. We're, we're going to mark two years next Sunday with a service and a wonderful meal. And we'll reflect back on this past year as well as the, the year before. But it is um, so characterized by mercy and acts of mercy and love. It's the most incredible church I've ever seen. Amen. Who are the people you will encounter this next week who need a touch of mercy? Who are they? Who will they be as you go your way this next week? And how will you show it? There's a great picture of Mother Teresa. And uh, it just says it all about mercy. A woman of wealth who gave it all up to go into the streets of Calcutta and to love people that had been absolutely forgotten and neglected by society. People dying in the gutters. And she showed mercy. Well, final part of the evaluation of our faith for authenticity is to see if it is active, which should be pretty obvious if these first two characteristics, inclusion and mercy, if they are there. James ended this part of his letter with a significantly clear statement in verse 17. Faith without works is dead. There's just nothing complicated about that, is there? He just sums it all up in that one phrase. Right beliefs without right practice did not equal right faith for them. Did not equal real faith. If they had real faith, then it would be accompanied by real works. It would be active with meeting the needs of the vulnerable and the poor. If it was otherwise, then it was dead. 
As the church of today, we must understand that this is our faith. And we need to understand our faith in these terms of works. If we say we have faith, yet have no works, then our faith is dead. As St. Francis said, preach the gospel at all times. And when necessary, use words. I'm afraid today that we use the words of the church and of Jesus and we do not show them the good news of Jesus Christ. And people, they'd rather see it and feel it before you start telling them about it. And so we have a lot of work to do. The people you go to school with, see at work, live next door to and live with, uh, they must see the gospel long before they hear it. Do they? Are there good works flowing out of your life or just words? If you say you have faith, show me. That's what they're saying. Tony Campolo tells a story of a moment when he heard God calling him to be more than passive faith. I first learned about Tony Campolo when I was in middle school. Uh, our youth minister began to show us a lot of uh, uh, speeches and sermons and things that the sociologist and wonderful Christian began to, uh, to put out uh, so that people could uh, hear what he was saying. And he says, uh, I walked down Chestnut Street in Philadelphia. There was a filthy bum covered with soot from head to toe. He had a huge beard. And I'll never forget that beard, he says. It was a gigantic beard with rotted food stuck in it. He held a cup of McDonald's coffee and mumbled as he walked along the street. He spotted me and he said, Hey, mister, you want some of my coffee? I knew I should take some to be nice, and I did. I gave it back to him and said, You're being pretty generous giving away your coffee this morning. What's gotten into you that you're giving away your coffee all of a sudden? And he said, Well, the coffee was especially delicious this morning, and I figured if God gives you something good, you ought to share it with people. I figured this is the perfect setup. I said, is there anything I can give you in return? I'm sure he's going to hit me for five dollars, he said. Yeah, you can give me a hug. <laughs> the guy with the beard and the food stuck in it wants a hug. I was hoping for the five dollars, Capolo says. <laughs> he put his arms around me and I put my arms around him and I realized something. He wasn't going to let me go. He was holding on to me. Here I am, an establishment guy, and this bum is hanging on to me. He's hugging me. He's not going to let me go. People are passing by on the street, and they're staring at me, and I'm embarrassed. But little by little, my embarrassment turned to awe. He says, I heard a voice echoing down the corridors of time saying, I was hungry. Did you feed me? I was naked. Did you clothe me? I was sick. Did you care for me? I was the bum you met on a chestnut street. Did you hug me? For if you did it unto the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. And if you failed to do it unto the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you failed to do it unto me. Amen. Our God, this is a difficult word as we hear it, as we read it.